You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Mark chapter 9, we're just going to jump right in because as I say, there's so much to do and we're going to begin at verse chapter 1. So, here's what it says. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Who is he talking about? There are some that will not taste death. The people that he's talking about, three specific people, he's talking about Peter, James, and John. When is this thing going to happen, the kingdom coming in power? We're going to see in the next verse It's going to happen six days after he says it. So very much before those who are present will taste death. So Peter, James, and John, it's going to happen in six days. What's going to happen? His glory, Jesus' glory is going to be revealed to them. That's the kingdom of God coming in power is this unveiling of Jesus, this this revealing of his true nature as God in human flesh. Who, what, when, how? Let's read how it happens, verse 2 through to verse 4. Mark says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So this is what Jesus was speaking of. The kingdom coming in glory is is literally he himself coming in glory. It's he himself being transfigured. That is his, his true nature being revealed to his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. So up to this point, Peter, James, John, the 12, they've seen glimpses of glory. We've seen this, right? We've, we've, we've been through eight chapters. They've seen glimpses of glory. They've seen Jesus walking on water. They've seen him calming the storm with a word. They've seen him take two small lunches and feed upwards of 5,000 men, 12, 15,000 people. They've seen these glimpses of Jesus' glory, but they've been glimpses. They haven't been enough to to sort of reveal to them Jesus' true nature as the God-man. And now, on this mountain, they have him revealed before them, transfigured. That is, his true nature is revealed to, to them. And in this passage, if you know the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of Old Testament allusions here. First of all, where is this happening? It's on a mountaintop. You think of God revealing his glory to Moses on the mountaintop along with his commandments. And Moses so being struck by the glory of God that his face was glowing as a result. Right? This, the glory of God manifest on a mountaintop is something that was very obviously part of an important part of the relationship between God and his people, his old covenant people. So you have that here on this mountaintop. And then you have Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah appearing here as sort of representatives of the old covenant, these great Old Testament prophets. 
a couple of the most important figures in the Old Covenant, appearing on the mountaintop kind of to bear witness to the fact that this is real, this is, this is legitimate, this is profound. This is a monumental moment in salvation history. Jesus has been revealed. And so you have these two really important figures there as kind of as witnesses to the truth of what's going on. And then you have Peter's response. And remember, Peter is providing the content for this gospel. John Mark is, is, is recording it from Peter's own eyewitness testimony. And so I always think it's quite endearing when Peter records the dumb things he says, which is often. Peter often says dumb things. Do you have one of these friends? Whenever something weird happens, whenever there's an awkward silence, there's always one person who says something dumb because they would rather say something dumb than have an awkward bit of silence. It's understandable, in a way, that Peter says what he says. Verse 5 to 6, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. So there's certain personalities where if they're unsure of what to say, they're in an awkward silence, or if they're scared, they just... they. They, they speak before they think. And Peter is absolutely one of those people. Over and over and over again, he does, he puts his foot in his mouth. But it's understandable, right? Like, what he's just witnessed, nothing in his life would have prepared him for this moment. Not even being with Jesus day and night, seeing him do incredible things. This is next level right here. This is Jesus fully unveiled in all of his deity. And so we're kind of prone to say dumb things when we're frightened, when we're shocked, when we're terrified. I can remember to this day being in grade prep, being a little five-year-old kid, and the love of my life was Christy Gannon. And... and and I had known her from kindergarten. So we, we went back months. Which, as a five-year-old, when you've known someone most of your life, it's just loved her so much. And I was, in the, uh, I was in the corridor getting something out of my bag, one of the first days of prep, and uh, obviously I was singing John Farnham to myself. I remember the, exactly the song that I was singing. You're the voice, try and understand it. Try and do it in a little boy voice. Hang on. You're the voice, try and understand it. Make a noise and make it. Probably getting a few of the words wrong. And so I was singing this, and then I turned around from getting something out of my bat, and there was Christy Gannon staring right at me, like standing right in front of me, and she had heard all of my singing. And so I looked right at her and I said, that's what you are, and ran. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. What, that's what you are. I don't even know. I had this other situation, right? I was living in the USA. I was 19 at this point, just became a Christian. I was living in D.C., just outside of Capitol Hill. I was living with a pastor. 
um, of a church. Um, actually worked for the Baptist World Union. It was was um, was located in Virginia, and so um, he went to a church where lots of government officials attended, and uh, just outside of the hill, Capitol Hill. And uh, I'd been to church that morning with my friend, a Kiwi guy. Uh, we were kind of backpacking around together, and we had met all of these people, and, and you could tell they worked for the government in high positions because whenever I said, so what do you do, they just met, like, one guy actually said, I could make up a story about what I do, but I know Australians like to get to the point, so I'll just tell you I can't tell you, right? So it was that kind of, it was that kind of crowd. And so then he and I took the train back to the house after church and the, the family we were staying with hung out for a little bit. They had a meeting or something and we decided that we would have a dance party um, in this house and so um, we put on um, Slice of Heaven. Uh, I don't know what the band is. You know that New Zealand song? Right, that, that one. Stripped down to boxes and just started dancing around the church, no, dancing around the house, just having a little dance party because that's what we did. And uh, we were like 18, 19 years old, but we weren't really, right? And so we, we were doing that. And, um, and, and then at one point, right in the middle of the music pumping and us dancing, I just heard this, Jonathan! And I turned around and it was the guy who I knew who we were staying with and then just flanked by all of these high-level government guys just <laughs> looking at us. And I just froze and said, what's for lunch? So this, I, I get it, Peter, I get it. This stuff happens when you're shocked, you're terrified, you, 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 you kind of put on the spot, and he says, listen, why don't, why don't I put up some tents for you guys? Huh? Tents? And he kind of, Peter, in his commentary on this, through John Mark, he kind of dismisses it as being a silly thing to say himself. That's why he says, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. Like, he's like, this is why I said that dumb thing. But the more I thought about it, the more profound what he has said becomes. Because if we, if we look into the Old Testament foundations of what's going on here, what he says actually makes perfect sense. He says, let me put some tents up for you guys. Literally, let me put some tabernacles up here. Why does he say that? Because right through the old covenant, wherever God's glory was made manifest, it lived, it resided in a tent, in a tabernacle. This was what the purpose of the tabernacle and, the, and then later the temple was to house the glory of God. He's just seen the glory of God revealed. And so he thinks, tents. It actually is quite a profound thought to have. It actually shows that he has a, a deeper level of understanding about the whole sweep of salvation history than, than those of us who easily dismiss what he says as just something dumb. And so he sees the glory of God revealed and he says, let's put a, let's put a tent over it. That's, that's what we've always done. And then you have this great turning point in salvation history, one of the many kind of trigger points where rather than that happening, this happens. Verse 7 to 8. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them 
except Jesus. Here's what's going on. The reason that Peter doesn't need to build a tent, the reason that there isn't a, a tabernacle required to house the glory of God is because the glory of God now resides in his son. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Jesus is the location, the, the, the residency of God's glory on earth. And so God speaks and then all they're left with is Jesus. No old covenant trappings, no requirement for tents. All they have is Jesus and all they need is Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God made flesh. Now, I don't know, maybe you guys all knew all of this, but I came across that with fresh eyes for the first time this past month. And I was kind of hoping that it would kind of click with you and we'd have people falling on their faces and stuff. But maybe, maybe it's just going to take a little bit of time. Maybe you'll get it on the way home. But th that's huge. That is an, an epoch moment in salvation history. God's glory now dwells not in a temple, not in a tabernacle, not in a tent, not in any one location, but in Jesus and Peter and James and John get to see it in the flesh. This transfiguration is an epoch-making moment. It's glorious. It's literally glorious. And then it seems like as, 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 as soon as we see that and we hear God's voice and things are made so clear to us, all of a sudden Mark shifts the scene and now we're on the mountainside, all right? Now they're making their way down the mountain and they've had this incredible mountaintop experience and they get to talking. So verse 9 to 13, as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is, is, it, is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Now this is something that I would probably otherwise skip over because we've got so much to get to, but I had several questions come to me this week about this particular passage. So let's just try and sort this out real quick because it is a little bit confusing. Um, all right, let me see if I can shortcut this. The, the Elijah that Jesus is talking about, the Elijah that comes before his coming, is he's referring to John the Baptist there, okay? So John the Baptist is... Not Elijah reborn or resurrected or whatever. He is the uh, new covenant version of Elijah. Elijah being this great prophet who called the people to repentance and made the way for God, God's rule, God's salvation plan to be established on the earth. So the same has been true of John the Baptist. John the Baptist called people to repentance. He made the, the path straight for Jesus coming, and he was killed, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, though we didn't get to dwell on it. They 
did whatever they pleased to him, Jesus said. And so again, you need to know there's all this old covenant foundation to everything that's going on here. So going back to Malachi, and we preached through this only a few weeks ago. Malachi 3.1 says this, and it's speaking of John the Baptist. See, I'm going to send my messenger. Remember, this is hundreds of years before Jesus coming. I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Whoa, that took on new meaning for me as I looked at it this past month. The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. God has come to his temple, Jesus. This is what we've just seen manifest in front of us. God's temple is Jesus. God's dwelling place is Jesus. God has suddenly come to his temple in the Lord Jesus. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Then Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6. Look, I'm coming to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I'll come and strike the land with a curse. This prophetic ministry of Elijah fulfilled by John the Baptist. And and Luke picks up on this. So Luke quotes this about, that passage about John the Baptist himself in 1 Luke 1, 16 to 17, speaking of John the Baptist, he will turn many of the children of Israel to to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. This was the ministry of John the Baptist, the fulfillment of the prophetic ministry of Elijah. And so they've just seen Elijah on the mountaintop that has called to mind this question about Elijah coming first before the Messiah. Why have we not seen Elijah come before the Messiah if you are the Messiah? Oh, actually, we have seen him come because John the Baptist was the fulfillment of all of Elijah was meant to be. And so that's that whole kind of conversation, the, the, the kind of theological structure and underpinning to it. And from the mountainside, they now rejoin the disciples in the valley below. And here's where we get to see the contrast between the glory and the garbage. Because while all of this has been going on on the mountaintop, down below, the disciples have been wrestling a demon. They've been confronted with the the reality of the, the garbage of this world, the sort of manifestation of darkness that all of us live with and are affected by. And in this case, it's kind of manifested itself in the life of this little boy, this little boy who is, who is possessed by this demon, this demon who throws him into the fire, throws him into water, is trying to destroy all, the, all of God's good creation God's good creation of this young boy is is slowly being deconstructed by this demon. And it's caused a bit of a a, a conflict because the the, the man has brought his son to to Jesus' disciples. He's heard not only is Jesus casting out demons, but his disciples are doing the same. And so he brings him to the disciples and they can't shift this demon.
And so Jesus says to the father of this boy, verse 21 to 24, how long has this been happening to him? From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I love that response. I love that line. I quote that line to myself all the time. I do believe. Help my unbelief. That should be a slogan for every Christian on the face of the earth. I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is part of what it's like to live in the glory and the garbage, right? This is part of what it's like to live in the now and not yet, as we've referred to it before. This world in which we see God moving and see his power demonstrated and his kingdom coming and the world in which we come up against demons. We come up against our own brokenness, our sin. The world around us, which is both beautiful and fallen, right? This is the tension we live in. It's the same tension that cuts through every heart of every believer. It's, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a beautiful response. And it comes together with Jesus' own deep, profound encouragement. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And then he does it. Verse 28 to 29. After he had gone into the... Uh, sorry, back up a sec. Um, verse uh, 25 through to 27. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him up, and he stood up. Jesus hears a desperate cry from a desperate father who believes and yet wants more, and he responds in power to deliver what was good from the oppression of that which is evil. And then we get this very important interaction between Jesus and his disciples, verse 28 and 29. After he'd gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. And we could talk a whole lot about what that means, but it means at least this. Let me try and apply this to our situation. It means at least this. Even Jesus' own disciples who lived with him and learned from him and saw his power and saw him regularly withdraw to pray, even they struggled with prayerlessness. Even them, right? This is more garbage in the midst of glory. Struggled with prayerlessness. 
Now, here's what's going on for us as a community, and this is one of those under-the-surface parts of the iceberg that we don't, a lot of us don't get to see, but what we have in our church right now, and, and, and particularly at a kind of leadership level, we have this growing sense that God is calling us into a season, perhaps an age, of, of increased prayerfulness. Because here's what I know for sure. I know that I'm like these guys. I know how pitiful my prayer life is. I know that it is out of sync with what I believe about the universe, about the way the universe works. And I know this too. I know that we can keep doing exactly what we're doing for the rest of our lives and we'll probably see a moderate amount of fruitfulness come out of it. We can just keep doing all the things we're doing, which are good things to do. I can't think of anything we're doing as a community that isn't a good thing to do. And we can keep doing it and doing it with a moderate amount of what we might call success. But I think what God is calling us to is, is rather than depending on those good things to bring about the ends that we want to see, he's calling us to a desperation. He's calling us to an active, desperate crying out for him to do what he wants to do in our community. And, 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 and this is going to be, for some of us, a little bit weird. If Christian life for you at this point has been mainly kind of sitting on the fringes of it and mainly about church attendance on a Sunday, and I get that, that's been my experience in my life as well, then this call, and it is a call we believe from God to an absolute giving of ourselves, body, body, mind and soul, to face on the floor, desperate, crying out, fasting and praying for his kingdom to come, that's going to look a little bit intense and maybe a little bit weird. But what we've seen through 2,000 years of church history is that preceding every great work of God, there is a sustained, on their face, desperate seeking of God on behalf of the people of God. There are some things that can only be achieved by prayer. And not by having an all-star staff team or really good training for volunteers or a great small groups ministry or someone who can get up the front and yell a lot. Like, apart from all of those things and actually kind of empowering all of those things and in some sense redeeming all of those things, there must be this desperate desire for God to move The image that came to mind for me this, this past week was doing all the things that we've always done and trying to do them as well as we can is a bit like rowing a boat, right? It's a bit like getting into a boat and rowing with the oars and trying to get upstream. And you can have a fair amount of success with that. If you do it long enough, your muscles grow, your technique gets better, and, and you get better and better at rowing that boat up that stream. And you can do it, and you can, and you can make some ground. 
That's one way of doing it. The other way is to get into a sailing boat and through prayer unfurl the sails asking that God would blow a mighty wind. There's a a big difference between being in a rowboat and being in a catamaran when the wind's blowing. And God Almighty, we want to see the latter at work in this place. And the more people we have in this congregation unfurling sails and asking the spirit, the wind, the breath of God to blow in this place, I believe the more abundant and lasting fruit we will see. And none of that's in my notes, but I just think, I, I just think, I just, I think that's what God is saying to us this morning. He's, he's saying, he's, he has already spoken to many in leadership about what he wants to do in this season. And I think he's calling the rest of us to be prepared for that, to get on board with that, to be a part of that. So watch this space. All right, let's get to this last little bit that I want to look at. And it's not little, it's enormous, but we'll try and fit it into the little amount of time we have. So the rest of this chapter is, is a bunch of teaching about what it means to follow Jesus. It's a bunch of teaching about the way of Jesus. Jesus has this vision for all of life, which is all-encompassing. If you read the, the Gospels back to back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll get this big picture vision for the way of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And it's an all-encompassing vision. In, in some ways, it's a socio-political vision. And, and, and don't read into that our modern-day politics, left and right, and all of that junk. It's, this, is, this is like an all of life. It's, it, it concerns all of life, the polis, the, 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 the all of lifeness of being a human being. And here we get kind of a, a whole slab, um, not an exhaustive um, seminar, but a whole slab of, of his teaching about what it means to be his disciples. And it's kind of triggered by more garbage. It's triggered by this garbage in the, in the disciples who, uh, in verse 33 and following, are arguing about, um, about who's the greatest among them. And it's just it's garbage, and it's garbage we're all familiar with. We have this, this part of our heart which always tends towards the wanting to be the greatest, wanting to be the best, wanting to have the most followers or the most likes or the most friends or the mo- whatever. Like just we, we have this within us. We're not judging you guys. We get it, right? And his response to this is to teach them about what it means to follow him. So let's look, verse 33, through to 37. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest, who was the goat Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be servant of all. He took a child 
had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. And then he goes on, verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to approach the people around us with a humility, with a childlikeness that enables us to be the last, the least, stop grabbing for glory ourselves. It prevents us from leading anyone to fall away themselves. And it takes seriously Jesus' call to holiness, which means if something's causing you to sin, get rid of it now. Calls to mind his teaching last week, remember? Anyone who would follow me, must first deny himself, take up his cross, that is, die to himself, then he can be my disciple. You know, you really have to wonder how this idea of nominal Christianity ever came to be. This idea that Christianity was about coming to a service and giving some coins, that's Christianity? You read this stuff? Like, how did that ever happen? What Jesus gives us is an all or nothing vision. And if you're here this morning and you're not there yet, then the beautiful truth of the gospel is that God is gracious and he's patient and you're here because he's calling you to something deeper. That's why you're here. You thought it was because your grandma wanted you here. It's actually because God wants you to get a vision for him as glorious God and king and you as one of his disciples, which, is, which means to make all of life all about Jesus. So I've been thinking about this, this little pithy saying we have that our, our mission as a church, our, our vision for our church is that we would be a community all these words have meaning, a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. 
And Dooku has been helping me this past week sort of re- review that and, and get a sense of what, what that vision might mean for us going forward in the next kind of three to five years and how we might need to, to kind of take that and, and recast it in different ways and with a new sense of, of dependency on God through prayer. And, and I've, so I've been thinking about all these things and I, I got, to, got to sort of just jumped into my mind this, this quote I remember reading from Eugene Peterson and I dug it up and I just love it. This is what he says. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. And this is, this is profound. This is what I want us to get, right? The Jesus way, wedded to the Jesus truth, brings about the Jesus life. We can't proclaim the Jesus truth, but then do it in any old way we like, nor can we follow the Jesus way without speaking the Jesus truth. No, the Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. And in this chapter, we've seen all of this come together. The Jesus truth, if you like, is Jesus transfigured on the mountain. It's him glorified before our very eyes. It's him with God speaking over him. This is my son. Listen to him. He speaks truth. Listen. Obey. It's hearing him say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your smartphone causes you to sin, throw it in the bin. Right? It's hearing him speak truth, and it means obeying that truth. And we've seen absolutely made manifest the Jesus way, both in his actions in compassionately healing the son of a desperate man and in his teaching, what it means to follow him means being last, means being humble, it means denying yourself. So here's what I know. There are people in this church who will tend towards the Jesus truth. Being a Christian means knowing the gospel and having right doctrine and about proclaiming the truth. You guys come here because you like it, someone up the front yelling at you. You're like, yeah, I like that. It's the Jesus truth. That's what I'm here for. And some of you tend more towards the Jesus way. You connect with Jesus most of all in, in the way that he lived, in the vision of kingdom living that he provides for his followers. People tend towards one in favor of the other. Some of that is personality-driven, some of that is theological disposition, whatever, but we tend towards one or the other. And this is what Eugene Peterson was picking up on in his book, The Jesus Way. The truth is that we need to have both and. We have both and in the God-man. Jesus is the embodiment of both his truth and his Way And when they're wedded together, we have his life. And that's the vision we have for our church, for each member, the Jesus life. Where the way of Jesus comes together with the truth of Jesus, it results in people, helping people, making all of life all about Jesus. It's the Jesus life. And I think what God is saying to us this morning is we need to pursue that and we need to saturate it all in desperate, face on the ground, I believe, help my unbelief, prayer. If you want any of that, then you can begin with prayer right now. I'm going to pray with you 
If you want to be part of this, you pray as well. And then we're going to have people down here, right here, just right over here, waiting to pray with you. And you can come and you can pray that your broken leg will be healed, and we would love to pray for that. And you can come and you can pray that your broken marriage will be healed, and we'd love to pray for that. But you could come and simply say to the person who's here to pray for you, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to remind you that a few months back now, I had a conversation with someone who said, when I was talking to them after the service, they were asking me to pray, and I said, you should have come down after the sermon. That would have been a good time for you to pray with someone. And they said, yeah, I felt like I should go and pray, but I didn't want everyone else to know that I didn't have it all together. And my response to them was, you are out of your mind. If you think that everyone else here has it all together, you are crazy. The only thing really that unites us all here is a love for Jesus and the fact that we're messed up. All right, so if there's any resistance to coming forward because you don't want, just forget it. Everyone is in your position and probably a lot of people are thinking the same thing. So let's just shed some light on that. All of us here need to pray. Some of us here will come forward and I wanna applaud them for doing it, all right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Mark chapter nine. Thank you for the vision of Jesus unveiled in all of his glory. I pray that we would see him that way now. That is how you are right now, Lord Jesus. You are glorified. You are ruling and reigning over all things, not just on a mountaintop, but over all human history, over every square inch of the earth. You are Lord. You are God. So please give us that vision of you this morning. And please give us a vision for what you want us to be. I pray that in this community you would bring together the Jesus truth with the Jesus way and that you would give us the Jesus life. And if this is true, this thing that we're sensing, that you are calling us to more and more desperate face-on-the-ground prayerfulness, then please do it. We have a will to do it, but our flesh is weak, Lord. We believe, help our unbelief. Increase in us a sense of desperation that would throw ourselves at your feet and say, if you are willing, you can do it. Father, please overcome in us any sense of cynicism, any sense that we want to withdraw, sit on the fringes, become an, that weird oxymoronic nominal Christian. Lord, please drive all of that out along with every demon and every stronghold and instead, Lord God, be at work among us. Make us alive. Make us alive, I pray, for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.